This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. All right, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode of the podcast is my co-host, Naval History Editor-in-Chief Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Great to see you, Ward. It's been too long a time. It has been too long a time. So what's happening with the Naval History Cosmos? Well, the new issue is hot off the press, literally. We just got the first copies last week. It looks great. It's got our 80th anniversary Pearl Harbor coverage, um, including some heavy-hitting articles by John Prados, Alan Zim, et al. Um, We're really proud of this issue, and we think it's going to be a good Christmas reading for all the uh, constituency out there. What's the theme, or what's our signature article in this one? Pearl Harbor at 80. Ah, look at me. Yeah, it's Pearl Harbor. No There's doubt. other great st- – I mean, uh, you know, a lot of stuff happens in that fortnight of infamy, if you will, after Pearl Harbor, and we cover a lot of that too. Uh, there's some great Age of Sail stuff in there as well. Um, the uh, Oh, the CNO Naval History Essay Contest Prize winner will appear in this issue as well, so keep your eyes out for that. Very timely and topical piece. I'll leave it at that and dangle it out there so you're intrigued. Any Admiral Kimmel savaging going on in this one? There's quite a bit of Kimmel, yeah. Um, savaging, no, but um, – Kimmel's talked about quite a bit. It's kind of hard to look back on that and not discuss that factor of it and what he went through and what's his level of culpability. It's all in there, folks. Well worth a read. Right. Okay. Stay tuned. Well, we've got a great guest on this episode, uh, kind of an unorthodox contributor in in some ways. Yes. Well, you could say that because we have a, um, a young Air Force lieutenant who wrote about subs in the Falkland War for us. So how cool is that, folks? This article by uh, Second Lieutenant Grant Willis, U.S. Air Force, blew up the Internet the other week for us. Um, it was the most read thing on the site, and it's just gone gangbusters. Uh, a lot of readership in Britain uh, uh, tapped into this, which we're thrilled to see. Uh, to all our uh, followers and readers in the U.K., hail and hearty greetings to you. Thanks for hopping on board. Um, Anyway, this is a really fascinating piece. It's about a submarine in the Falklands War, the San Luis, and its exploits in that war, and also um, some very alarming, I guess you could say, concerning lessons um, for the Royal Navy uh, and what they did not do with this submarine in terms of detecting it. It also tells you a lot about how the submarine is only as good as its torpedoes. Um, very, that very much reminded me of uh, the U.S. Navy in the early part of the Pacific War. Those t- torpedoes, man, talk about needing to fix things on the fly. Anyway, we see some of that uh, in the saga of the San Luis. Um, so, Grant, uh, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me, gentlemen. Ward, Eric, it's an honor to be here. 
Oh, well, that's, the honor's ours. Um, why don't you just go ahead and uh, recount this tale for the listeners, and we'll chat back and forth with you as we go. Well, absolutely, sir. Thank you. Uh, so I think, I think to start off, uh, a lot of people probably ask, why the Falklands? Uh, I think that's the uh, number one thing uh, people would, would tend to ask here. It, you know, when, when you look back at 1982 and the experience between Argentina and Britain there, it's the first and only glimpse for, for us really to study uh, what a modern naval campaign is going to look like. Uh, you know, you have the Gulf War, you have uh, the modern combat that we've seen uh, in the 21st century, but you never really see two sides going at it uh, the way that Argentina and Great Britain did, where you had a almost near peer type uh, combat going on in an expeditionary environment that was uh, very hospitable. Uh, and it was in somebody's home court. And in the uh, British case, it was not in their home court. And they had to travel uh, eight, over 8,000 miles away from home to get there. And, uh, you know, the Falklands, uh, to me as a kid, you know, growing up in, in Dayton, Ohio, I'd watch 20th century battlefields and I'd sit there and wonder, well, what is this war, right? I mean, 1982, uh, Great Britain and Argentina going at it. I mean, this is, this is crazy to me, right? And I'd watch that and, and see the A4 Skyhawks coming in low over San Carlos water, bombing these modern British warships at three to five meters above the waterline with Snake Eye Mark 82s and Mark 117s going into the side of these ships. And I'm like, well, what is happening here? You know, I mean, as an Air Force guy, I'd always grown up wanting to be in the Air Force. And, and I said, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. And uh, the submarine aspect of the Falklands War always was something that interested me because that's it's just something that you don't see after World War II. I mean, you get a glimpse of uh, the 1962 uh, uh Cuban Missile Crisis between the Soviet Union and the United States, and you see ASW uh, and anti-submarine warfare happening off the coast of Cuba, uh, almost resulting in you know a, nu a nuclear catastrophe. But after that, you see a Cold War game of cat and mouse between the Soviet Navy and the United States Navy and uh, NATO fleets, but you don't really see combat. In this case, in 1982, you did see that, and you saw it between the most unlikely partners. You saw it between the British and the Argentines. And, uh, and, and that's really where our uh, story begins here is, is with the Argentine decision to invade the Falkland Islands in April of 1982. And uh, Operation Rosario, as the Argentines called it, uh, the objective of that was to reclaim the Falkland Islands and to Buenos Aires. It's known as the Malvinas. Um, it's a disputed island. Uh, it's, it's associated with uh, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands and the South Atlantic very hospitable, very inhospitable place, uh, Antarctic conditions, um, something that a lot of people before this war never really even knew about other than the World War I naval clash that happened uh, down there. And when this invasion happened, the British were stunned. Uh, they didn't believe that the Argentines would actually go through with it. And the Argentine uh, junta at the time, the military government uh, ruled by the three service chiefs there, uh, decided uh, that it was uh, time for them to invade the Falkland Islands when they figured that uh, through a miscalculation that the British would not respond and they would be able to restore some sort of uh, you know positive view from their own population uh, towards their government. And uh, the Falklands, uh, as we know today, they, they're very rich in oil. Uh, they've got oil deposits there, and it's also a point of pride for the Argentines. So they figured that they were going to invade and, and uh, take that over. Now, the British response to Operation Rosario on uh, 2 April uh, was shock. And uh, the 
Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, uh, she decided, along with her war cabinet and Sir Henry Leach, the first sea lord, to send a task force down there uh, to reclaim the islands if they had to, if the diplomatic uh, challenges did not uh, come forth there. So uh, if the diplomatic edge didn't succeed, they were going to have to fight, and they were going to have to fight an expeditionary campaign. Now, the British in 1982, they were primarily focused on NATO. They were primarily focused on uh, their NATO commitments in Western Europe with the British Army of the Rhine and the Royal Navy's commitment to the North Atlantic, uh, if that were to ever go hot with the Soviet Navy. Uh, the Argentines were definitely not somebody uh, on the British radar as far as Parliament goes uh, in April of 82, uh, but all the signs pointed that they were going to invade. So the task force was sent. Uh, it took them three weeks to get down there, and a total exclusion zone was uh, was created to identify that any uh, ship from any nation entering that zone would be attacked if it entered. So the Argentines really were, were up against the might of the Royal Navy. But the problem was, was that the British were operating outside of their backyard. They were operating outside of, of really any logistical planning. Uh, it was very difficult for them to gather a amphibious assault force to back up the surface action force that was going to go down there and establish uh, control over the seas uh, around the Falklands. Now, uh, the fundamental problem for the British is is uh, there are many fold here. So they've got logistics to deal with. They've got long uh, chains of supply to try and defend and to maintain. They have a uh, population at home that uh, doesn't really understand where the Falklands are, uh, other than the fact that you know now it's in front page news after the Royal Marines are sitting there getting paraded by the Argentine commandos that took over Stanley. So uh, very similar to the hostage crisis in Iran in 1979 we went through. Uh, the British task force goes down there with two carriers, uh, the HMS Hermes and HMS Invincible. These are light carriers. These are not uh, fleet carriers that we're used to, like the Ford class or the Nimitz class or something like that. You know, it, they're not able to carry a wide array of aircraft. And uh, the main problem for the British at the beginning of this conflict is what are they going to do when they get down there? How are they going to establish air supremacy? And how are they going to protect the amphibious group that is going to have to land? Uh, and that's the, the, the reality of the British problem in 82 is if you are going to fight in that uh, Argentine backyard, you have to land the task force, you have to get the group troops on the ground, and you have to move inland and take Stanley. Now, the Argentines really do have a sound defense capability. And I say capability because they, they certainly have the equipment to do this. Uh, it is a uh, down to a commander's decision. Uh, at the Argentine level, whether or not they're going to fully utilize their capability against the incoming British task force. So the uh, Argentines have a uh, substantial land-based airstrike capability. They've got old A-4 Skyhawks. They've got uh, Israeli Delta Daggers. They've got Mirage 3s built by France. They have five air-launched uh, Exocet anti-ship missiles. They've got Canberra bombers, uh, KC-130 refueling uh, aircraft, and they've got uh, substantial ASW uh, aircraft, S-2 trackers, P-3, or no, uh, P-2 Neptunes, uh, and they've also got uh, Boeing 707s for reconnaissance. Uh, this is not a force to take lightly, and the British know that. And they also have a substantial submarine force. They've got four submarines that they can bring to bear for this operation if they choose to. Uh, they have two Guppy II-class American hand-me-down submarines. Uh, the ARA Santa Fe, which is pretty famous. Uh, if anybody's really studied the Falklands War, they would they would know uh, South Georgia's uh, campaign and the Santa Fe being caught on the surface. 
and uh, they have the ARA uh, Santiago uh, del Estero. Uh, that is another Guppy II class. And they've also got the ARA San Salta and San Luis. Uh, San Luis is the, kind of the star of our story here. And unfortunately for the Argentines, uh, their strategic planning was, was, it was very uh, centered around a certain key personnel. They did not uh, really give away the operational plan for Rosario to their subordinate commanders all the way down to the level of uh, the actual boat captains that would be going out there. Uh, Air Santa Fe was uh, deployed out to South Georgia for a resupply mission to the Argentine Marines that had landed there. Uh, the uh, Santiago del Estero was inoperable. Its uh, sonar was not operable, it was inactive, and it, it frankly couldn't it could barely get out of port. Uh, and the uh, San Salta was having engine trouble. Uh, it was making a lot of noise. And a lot of our uh, sub uh, listeners out there, they, they probably understand that, you know, if you're making a lot of noise underwater, that's not a good way to go. So uh, the San Luis was the only uh, submarine that was able to actually face the task force along with the rest of the Argentine surface fleet. Now, the Argentine Navy was not a joke. Uh, in in uh, relation to the Royal Navy, the Argentine fleet was substantial. It had a carrier, the Aire Venta Cinco de Mayo. It had several uh, Type 42 destroyers that are very similar to the Type 42s like HMS Sheffield and HMS Glasgow and Coventry that came down initially with the task force. Uh, they have uh, several hand-me-down uh, U.S. destroyers. Uh, they've got the uh, Pearl Harbor Survivor uh, Aire uh, 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 Belgrano. Uh, that is a, uh, a former USS Phoenix, the uh, cruiser that uh, the U.S. Navy had survived Pearl Harbor and gone through that campaign, and uh, had these submarines. Now, the San Luis's war patrol uh, really consisted of three major attacks against uh, the oncoming British task force. Now, uh, it was a Type 209 uh, diesel electric uh, an SSK uh, submarine. It's mainly used for uh, shallow and coastal waters. It's a smaller attack submarine, but it packs a big punch. It's got SST-4 uh, West German-built torpedoes. It's got Mark 37 American torpedoes. Uh, it's, it's a substantial vessel. Uh, now, the main uh, problem that the, the uh, Argentine submarine force faced was the fact that the Argentine submarine force was not notified of Operation Rosario prior to. So, I mean, uh, think about this. You've got a uh, Western Pacific uh, conflict sparking up. Uh, today or, or some sort of contingency scenario sparking up and your submarines are not prepared uh, to sail into combat. I would, I would view that as an issue. Uh, so once the actual operation uh, is underway, the San Luis uh, sails with a crew and a new captain. Now the crew and this new captain, uh, Captain Fernando Escueta, he is taking this boat out for the first time. Uh, he's not a experienced boat uh, skipper for uh, for the Ch Type 209. Uh, he's experienced in the uh, guppies, uh, but he hasn't taken out a 209 before. And the crew just graduated the sub-school in 1981. So these guys are very ill-experienced when it comes to their equipment, and their equipment is not reliable. Uh, One-fourth of the Argentine sub-fleet is actually able to participate in the waters around the Falklands. So it just goes to show you that they had some uh, maintenance issues and readiness problems um, that would really, really impact any sort of uh, major uh, operation they could carry out against the task force. But regardless of that, the British were very fearful of these Type 209s and the other submarines that the Argentines could technically on paper put into the field. 
So the Royal Navy sailed down there with pretty much everything they could, uh, every single combat vessel that was available uh, to go down there without uh, hindering too much into their NATO commitments uh, was able to uh, sail down there. It kind of gives you a foreshadow of, you know, if you have a global fleet like we do, uh, what kind of uh, global commitments do we have to maintain while we also send uh, a combat force out to uh, deal with any contingency? You know, that's something that is definitely within planning there. Uh, the task force showed up off of the Falklands from Britain uh, weeks after the announcement. Uh, the Argentines had ample time to prepare, and uh, the Argentines uh, launched air attacks first against the task force. Famously, the uh, superintendards uh, launched uh, their uh, French-built Exocet missiles. They struck the Sheffield and sunk her. Uh, it was the first British uh, warship to be sunk in combat after World War II. It was pretty substantial. And after that, the Argentine Air Force really uh, started to pepper the uh, British combat ships uh, and the amphibious force who was coming into San Carlos. Now, this, uh, this coordinated attack uh, of the air power that the Argentines were able to bring to bear, uh, that, that air attack was coupled or should have been coupled with the ARA San Luis's war patrol. And now the ARA San Luis uh, was in a northern uh, patrol area outside of the uh, exclusion zone and was ordered back into its patrol areas uh, to try and uh, try and mess with the British combat ships that were sailing around the Falklands at the time. And the first run that the San Luis made was against uh, the HMS Yarmouth. It's a Type 12 frigate and also HMS Brilliant, a Type 22 frigate. Uh, now, during these attacks, the... Uh, Torpedoes at San Luis fired malfunctioned. The uh, the fire control uh, system on the San Luis failed, so they had to do their calculations by hand uh, in a combat scenario against uh, ASW warships that were designed to hunt them down and kill them. So this is a very high-stress environment, uh, and their equipment did not work. Uh, they could not hit the uh, Type 12 or Type 22. And then after a sustained 20-hour battle with depth charges and torpedoes, uh, they survived that first encounter and lived to fight another day. And the second run that the San Luis made later on uh, during the campaign was on 8 May against a possible submarine contact. Now, this cannot be confirmed, but the Argentine side claims that it fired a torpedo against a British submarine, and they heard a hit. The British did not claim any hit. Uh, they believe that the uh, torpedo actually ran into the ground and its wiring broke, its guided wires broke. Uh, so, again, faulty equipment, right? And the third run that the ARA San Luis made was against uh, HMS Arrow and Alacrity. These are Type 21 frigates. Uh, that run resulted in an actual towed countermeasure from HMS Arrow being hit by a uh, torpedo. And they only knew they were under attack when they brought in that countermeasure and they looked at it and said, oh, hey, there's a submarine there. It hit us. But all in all, the, the British ASW efforts were spread thin. Uh, they didn't have uh, a lot of equipment to actually dedicate to ASW while also committing to defending the task force, right? The carriers are the most important in this British task force sailing down there, providing the only cover that they can from the air uh, against the Argentine threat. Only 20-plus uh, Harriers can take off from them, and uh, it's actually a combined RAF uh, Royal Navy Harrier uh, component that's sent down there. And uh, once, once the ASW efforts are, are pretty much spread out and you've got uh, the amphibious force landing, you have a lot of commitments from the British side that they need to worry about. They need to do area air defense against the Argentine air attacks that are constant, and they are hitting British ships on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you have six ships that are sunk. 
uh, by uh, Argentine air attack. And then you've got nine unexploded bombs that actually penetrate uh, British warships and they fail to explode. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a constant harassment from the air that, that can only be a lesson for the future. And the San Luis is, is there as almost a fleet and being uh, along with its uh, sister submarines there because the British aren't entirely sure that the Argentines are only deploying the San Luis. So at the end of this, of, of this campaign, to, to wrap up the overall summary of what we're talking about, the ARA San Luis really did pioneer what a modern ASW campaign is going to look like and the difficulties of doing that, right? You've got to expend weapons. You have to expend stocks of weapons. You have to actually ensure that your doctrine and your training and your weaponry is actually going to perform uh, the way that it's expected to. And in the Falklands on both sides, we learn that that is not true. Uh, they don't always uh, have doctrinal success and they don't always have the weapons effects that you're looking for in peacetime. Right. Uh, so it really does take uh, a war to, to exemplify what those weaknesses are and how to build from them. Uh, but but with that, I'll, I'll leave it to I'll leave it to you, gentlemen, to uh, to continue the conversation. Uh, so, Grant, you mentioned that the Sheffield was the first to take a hit. How far away were they? I mean, were, were they in the literals by that time, or was this in deep water, blue you know, blue water, like pr- still pretty far away from Argentina? Um, how did that go? And when the British Navy sailed, did they maintain? sort of battle group integrity during the the transland were they all together for the duration or did the fast ships go up, up out front or yeah. how, did, how did that work because you know you're wondering in those scenarios that are kind of i don't know ragtag um you know when would you make first contact with the enemy did they have a heads up that they were about to get hit by the exocet or was it completely a surprise was that like before they thought they would be getting into uh, you know, range of actual kinetic activity? I'll start off with the Sheffield. Um, the, the Sheffield was hit by that one of those uh, French Exocet missiles. Like we said, they only had five. Um, and the Sheffield is, is actually kind of a, a point of contention amongst uh, some people when it comes to analyzing what actually uh, caused uh, the hit. And Glasgow, uh, the Type 42 sister ship for Sheffield, actually detected the incoming missile first. Uh, they were stationed south of the Falkland Islands. Uh, they were picked up by the P-2 Neptunes. Uh, the Argentine uh, ASW hand-me-down from the U.S. Navy uh, actually detected the Type 42 search radar, and uh, that gave it away. And uh, they fired uh, the Exocet from one of the Superintendent Dards after they had come off the tanker, uh, the KC-130s. And they fired at their target. They, uh, they turned back towards home, and the Exocet... Uh, skimmed the the sea top as it was intended. And the Glasgow, the only thing it could do was put up chaff and and try and maneuver. And the Sheffield was sending a communication at the time. And the only uh, incoming uh, notification that they did receive was from the Sheffield's bridge itself. A junior officer and a series of uh, sailors actually saw the incoming exocet. And uh, it was was too late. Uh, The Sheffield couldn't do anything about it. And it was hit. And uh, a number of sailors were killed from that and a number wounded. And uh, Sheffield actually did not physically sink uh, until a few days after. Uh, but it did go down. Uh, the damage was that extensive. And it just goes to show you that this is a, a modern glimpse, a tiny piece of what a missile war will look like. And if you go to the West Pack today uh, in the Western Pacific and you look at the worst case scenario, it is a naval campaign with the saturation of missiles. And that is what the 
uh, worst case iron curtain type scenario we have now in the 21st century. And, and, and the Sheffield just goes to show you that if you can be found, you can be hit. And if you can be hit, you can be destroyed. And the Argentines were able to do all three of those. So how fast and, is an exocet is a subsonic, an exocet is a subsonic missile, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So uh, to your point about a Westpac China scenario, it, it's not just a missile war. It's a hypersonic missile war, right? So reaction time is orders of magnitude less than what they had in the Falklands. So you mentioned that the the Superintendard launches it and, and then retires back to base. So are we talking a couple of hundred miles uh, that that Exocet traveled? Again, th- this this is uh, an eye-opener, you know, all these years later, 40 years later, um, in that, you know, the, the awareness was limited and the ship that got hit was not did not realize that they were targeted. Right, uh, exactly, and 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 the the problem of getting in range to fire the missile is probably the greatest thing that the Argentines were able to pull off was the fact that they were able to get onto the tanker, uh, come out and uh, locate the search radars, relay that information to the strike aircraft and the crews, and they were able to get into position relatively close to the battle group. Uh, they got in within uh, within a hundred miles of that battle group to fire their missile, and it didn't. Uh, it didn't take a lot of effort to do that. And to keep in mind, the fleet air defense was very limited in what it could do to try and take down those superintendent darts coming in because you have a lack of air supremacy. You, in fact, you hardly ever have air parity in this in this campaign. You have uh, air contested uh, by these flights of uh, combat air patrols coming off of the British carriers. And uh, you have this vicinity of the battle space uh, to the home player, Argentina, where it can launch uh, the strike aircraft in mass uh, with air refuel capability against the incoming task force. So the superintendents who took off, uh, the naval strike uh, crews who took off that day were able to relatively stay right within their their combat range. It wasn't that difficult for them to do. And the uh, British really had no way other than their their seaborne, uh, surface-to-air missile systems, which proved later on in the campaign against the A-4 Skyhawks and the Mirages and Delta Daggers that they were limited in their capability of what they could hit and how they could hit them. Uh, so it just goes to show you the importance of, of uh, area air defense when it comes to a naval campaign, especially an expeditionary naval campaign of this nature. Uh, Grant, you point out a lot of what-ifs that attendant to this war, and one of the counterfactuals that jumps out from this particular story to me was, what if um, the Argentines had had their entire subforce ready and raring to go, um, looking at how the one that went out there to San Luis emerges without a scratch? I mean, they can't touch this thing, the British. Um, so there's a weak link in their chain in their ASW. If the Argentines had been up to speed with their subforce, could that have changed the outcome of this? Oh, absolutely, Eric. Um, one of the major problems with the planning for Rosario by the uh, Junta was the inability or, or straight up just negligence of informing their commanders on what the timeline looked like, what to prepare for, what to specifically plan on. Uh, and, and, and another thing I, I'd like to mention was the most experienced subcrews weren't even in the country at the time of the war. 
they were in West Germany at the time trying to pick up the 1700 series of submarines the West Germans were building for them. And, uh, and, and it's kind of funny with West Germany. That's kind of how it got the, the title of the enemy below because it is the first time in the 20th century a U-boat, a German-built submarine had fired on Her Majesty's Navy in anger. So I, I found that kind of interesting when I was doing my research. Yes. But the, the main concept of having the best crews, the best skippers, the guys with the most experience uh, in the right equipment at the right time really failed to be understood by Admiral Anaya and his planning staff. You know, uh, the, the Air Force and the Army uh, had their plans. They had their op plans to, to deal with. And the uh, overall concept of the operation was not fully understood by the total Argentine force that was embarking on the most important military campaign in their history against the most modern enemy that they could think of at the time, other than the United States or the Soviet Union. Uh, so, so yeah, Eric, that, that it's, it's an exact uh, it's it's an exact counterfactual to, to point out that, you know, if these four submarines had been ready and properly coordinated by the sub uh, the sub force uh, command staff there, they would have been able to go into the long supply lines from Ascension down to the Falklands, uh, even down to South Georgia. They would have been able to interfere with shipping from Gibraltar and the United Kingdom down to Ascension. Uh, there's all kinds of things that they would have been able to do to create a, a firestorm of, of difficulty for the British ASW because it was already spread uh, trying to find the one submarine San Luis. It, it would have been a nightmare for the British to try and locate four. And, and yes, the guppies would have been loud. They would have been I, I, in my personal opinion, I think they would have been destroyed if they came out uh, and, and tried to, to uh, hinder the task force. But the San Salta and San Luis would have been able to use that uh, as cover to get in close to the task force, which San Luis was able to do. Uh, they were able to get in very close, dangerously close to that task force. And, and uh, the one thing that you would, you would uh, as an Argentine, kind of uh, dream about is, is that periscope being, being lined up against uh, one of the carriers. Uh, just as if, you know, it had been right there, like our sub was uh, in the middle of the Japanese carrier task force in 1942 at Midway. Right. Uh, but it is a very it's a very interesting series of counterfactuals that you find in the Falklands. I mean, you've got that. You've got the uh, Argentine light carrier, the Air Aventa Cinco de Mayo, a former British Colossus class, uh, the former HMS Venerable, who had uh, ample firepower to take a, a, to take out a, uh, one of the carriers in an airstrike. And uh, I believe they turned into the wind to launch against uh, HMS Hermes and Invincible, and uh, they could not get the airspeed uh, required, the headwind required to launch off of the carrier in order to carry out that strike. And they were planned and everything, and, and the Argentines were able to locate and track that carrier force and, uh, and, and come up with a strike plan, and they weren't able to pull it off. So that's another, that's another big what if there. Well, you point out that the uh, San Luis was at sea for 36 days, a diesel boat. Um, what were the logistics associated with that? Or were they w during that time without resupply and just alone and unafraid? Well, the, the main problem for a diesel boat is that it's got to come up at some point to recharge. And uh, the problem for the San Luis was it was so deep in its war patrol at that time and taking so, and, 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 uh, taking so much anger from the ASW force, from the British, uh, that its head was down for a lot of the time uh, because, I mean, these are inexperienced crews. Uh, this is a captain who had uh, not been familiar with uh, this type of ship before. Uh, 
and the boat was 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 really running for its life uh, the majority of the time. And uh, the only way to have a resupply was to go home back to uh, Puerto del Belgrano uh, in in Argentina. Uh, so it really didn't have any capability to do, uh, you know, like in the Germans, the Germans in World War II had the milk cows, the U-boats that would come up and, and, and re, uh, refuel the U-boats at sea uh, outside the air gap. Uh, and the uh, Type 209 in this case uh, had no capability to get resupplied while it was out at sea. The only way it could come back in and, and restock was to come home. There's some clear-cut lessons in this story that you've alluded to about um, readiness or the lack thereof. Um, what would you say are the most important takeaways looking toward a future scenario for our fleet? Oh, absolutely. Great question. Um, other key takeaways for me would be, uh, you know, the British had three weeks of prep time getting down there. In a modern scenario in the 21st century, let's say Western Pacific, Taiwan Strait type scenario, we won't get that same amount of time that the British got to organize a task force and, and go back in. You have to be able to uh, fight and win on that first day uh, with the assets you have in theater. And I mean the joint assets that you have capable of, of uh, coming into the battle space and influencing the outcome of that battle on day one, uh, right? preferably in the first 12 hours of, of any sort of contingency action. Uh, second one uh, would be uh, if you know you, you go to war with what you have. Uh, that, that's a huge lesson uh, that that we can take away here. You know, you never know how your doctrine is going to perform. You never know what the weapons are going to do uh, once they actually uh, face contact with the enemy. Uh, so today, uh, you know, in, in the Western Pacific, you know, you can talk about what we're going to have ten years, twenty years from now. What are you going to have tomorrow? Right. What are you going to have on the first day of the fight? Because the enemy in this case, in the worst case scenario, has the geographical initiative. They have the initiative and we are fighting a long way from home. Right. Uh, now, the British, uh, they had the luck of having Gibraltar and Ascension. We have even more luck with our bases uh, in the Western Pacific and on the way there. But the logistics of that type of operation uh, really do need some thought when it comes to war planning and contingency planning and making sure that the enemy, although they have a geographical initiative, that they do not uh, allow uh, their actions to dictate what we do, uh, right? So, so again, you know, you have to adapt what you have in the field today to meet the actions of tomorrow, because you you really do never know uh, where it's going to be and what what is going to take place. So, our guest has been Second Lieutenant Grant Willis, United States Air Force, Grant. You are currently in training to be a drone pilot, right? Uh, yes, sir. A remotely piloted aircraft. Is that what you guys call them? Remotely piloted aircraft? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a, a PR. <laughs> yes. Yeah, whenever I talk to my family at home, they're like, oh, you three of the drones? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so thank you, Grant, for uh, joining us today. And f thank you for contributing to Naval History Magazine. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. I appreciate the opportunity and hope to see you guys soon. Yes, please uh, feel free to um, send some more stuff our way, uh, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.